You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. All right, hello everybody. Today, my guest is Ryan O'Hara, who is the VP of Growth and Marketing at Lead IQ. Over the past several years, Ryan has trained thousands of sales reps in personalized prospecting and social selling. Prior to Lead IQ, Ryan has been an early employee at several startups, helping them with marketing and prospecting tactics, including Din, hopefully I pronounced that correct, who was acquired by Oracle for $600 million in 2016. At Din, Ryan was the first BDR, that's business development rep, and he trained all the sales hires on prospecting, helping the team to scale from three to 100 reps. He's had prospecting campaigns featured in Fortune Magazine, Mashable, Inside.com, Sales Hacker, and The Next Web. He's also the host of the the Prospecting Podcast. So Ryan, uh, after that intro, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with, with me today. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I, I um, do want to mention too that like I did eventually roll into marketing, but I do like I do marketing stuff mainly. But like the a lot of my bio stuff is heavy on prospecting because like honestly, that's where teams need a lot of help. I think you know what I mean. I think outbound marketing mm-hmm. is kind of heading in a bad direction, and we can fix it. What what direction is do you think it's heading in, and, and why is it, in your opinion, why is it heading in a bad direction? Yeah. So the way I look at it. There's kind of, I know people sometimes call these things vanity metrics, but if you look at a prospecting team, the average response rate on a cold email is less than 1%. And the average response rate on a cold call is less than 3%. Simply Mm -hmm. put, prospects are learning to tune us out. And this is a problem because if we are supposed to get 60% of our revenue from outbound prospecting, what are we going to do in 10 years when you don't have those channels anymore? I literally, you get a call on your phone and it's not no number. What do you do? People hit the side button on their phone and send it right to voicemail. My inbox, I literally don't even check it anymore. I have an EA that checks my inbox for me. That's why I didn't see the email you guys wrote me earlier. Like it's, it's like, this is what's happening to buyers everywhere because they have to tune out messaging. And I think that there's a couple of symptoms that have caused this. uh, But the overarching problem is that reps are just not putting the time into the right things anymore. So they spend their time prospecting and using stuff like, um, you, I'll give you an example. There's a company I talked to last week. They're using nine different applications to create an opportunity between what they're using for email, getting data, creating leads in Salesforce, mm-hmm. pushing stuff in uh, LinkedIn Sales Navigator. You start adding all these different tools up, Gong for call intelligence. You add all these things yeah. up and administering and using all this stuff. How are they going to have time to write a good cold email or do a good cold call? Yeah, the stack, the stack around this is getting really complex. Um, and I think I, I don't really see an end in sight because now we've got, we have the revenue intelligence or um, I think that's the, the official category of gong and chorus. You've got the sales out, the, um, the outreach IOs of the world, the sales lofts. I think that's sales, uh, sales engagement. Of course, you've got CRMs. 
and um, and then you've got lead intelligence tools. And I'm probably just scratching the surface there. So I guess more and more people are, are trying to just navigate this complex tech stack and um, not really focusing on the message. Um, do you still do you still believe that outbound marketing can be effective if, if it's done the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was nodding profusely on a podcast. That's always a classic podcast veteran move. But, I, I do um, the same thing usually to keep the guests uh, talking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's totally no. But I'm I'm like agreeing with you completely. There uh-huh. is still hope. There's an asteroid coming to Earth, but we can send Bruce Willis up to blow it up. And uh, it's it's very doable. Uh, there's a couple things that you can do right now that your team should do to change your strategy. The first thing is this. Just because we've built tools that let you automate cold emails and cold calls doesn't mean you should use them that way. <laughs> like okay. a, a good way of looking at it would be like, I have a car and I can drive on the road. That car can go off road. That car can go over the speed limit, but it doesn't mean you should go over the speed limit. Uh, and that's sort of a good way of looking at it. I mean, if I use a sales engagement platform, let's say I use an outreach or a sales off, both those tools allow you to check off a box when you build a sequence that says auto send email or auto send call or auto dial call. And you send that thing off to a prospect. You just missed a chance to really make a good impression for it. The way I sort of look at it is I think the future of prospecting, even though these things are automated and they can make you more efficient, the future of prospecting isn't going to be that. The future of prospecting is going to be, I want to make a Super Bowl ad, but for one account. Because when I bring that account in, I'm going to make a couple hundred grand off of it. So I don't care if I spent a week putting together something for one account. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of the direction that we're going to start heading toward. You're going to see organizations shift to that because AI and stuff is going to make it so you can automate all this, all the messaging and all the calls and all the scripts and all the stuff you send over email. And eventually prospects will learn to tune that out too. They Mm -hmm. won't be able to tune out the human element of like, how do I connect with this person individually? Yeah. I I got a prospecting email today that I thought was interesting because it was someone, it was a pitch for a podcast guest and it it said uh, it it was a loom video. And I I think that was a part of why it was effective, but it was, one, uh, the, the guy who sent the email was not the, the guy who shot the video. There were actually three three people. There was the guy who sent the email and he sent the email to alert me that, hey, my colleague shot this Loom video recommending that, that this other person be a guest on your show. And it seemed a little bit overly complex, but it, it drew me in and, and uh, the Loom video I thought was, was quite well done. And I, I believe that there was definitely time spent on on thinking about listening to the podcast and thinking about what what our needs are in our audience. And so I had to tip my hat to that. But I probably, I don't know, I get dozens get dozens of those a day. Most of the time I can archive without even opening when I just see that they haven't even personalized with my with my name. But, but most people still do, do such a lazy job with it and it's all automated. Yeah, um, that's kind yeah. of, the, that's sort of the issue here too is like you're looking at the preview text. If that preview text was about you, you'd probably open the email, wouldn't you? Yeah. Usually I'm I'm still opening emails even if if it's personal. If it just says hi Paris and if the first sentence starts to look decent, I, I'm opening most of those, but still the large majority it just says hello or hi there. And come on, I mean they can do better than that, I think. Hey, there's the greatest personalization they can come up with. I, I sort of think the way I've been thinking about it a lot, there's kind of three layers of personalization. Keep in mind, sales and prospecting has been around for, I don't know, hundreds of years now. Um, you think about how sales started, right? 
this, this is how it's, this is the, the domino effect that has caused us to get to this point today. When sales first started, it was people selling face-to-face. You would go to one of the most popular ways that sales teams scaled back in the old days is they actually would set up stations and kiosks at train stations. So like people would go to a train station, they, the rich people would be traveling across the country to go out West or check out something. They'd stop at these train stations, they'd hear pitches and then they'd move on to the next city. And the way that they scaled that is they basically had everyone learn the same script and do the same thing because you only have a couple minutes to get everyone through. You don't have time to personalize stuff. And then mm-hmm. the next evolution of that was in the 30s and 40s, the first full-time cold calling position was opened. Uh, the Chicago Tribune was actually the first company to do it. So they had a uh, person that would read a script and they basically were going door to door to businesses and trying to sell them advertising space in the newspaper. And what they shifted to was, wow, we can call these people a lot faster. So they would just took the same scripts. Problem is when you mm-hmm. go to those businesses, you don't know when you're on the phone, you don't know who you're calling. In fact, they would just cold call like, what are we a number hoping it was a business because that's who had phones first. Mm-hmm. And when email came out, we took the same scripts that we're doing on phone and put it on email. And socials now, like socials now been around for 10 years. People are now taking what they used to do in a cold call and doing it on LinkedIn for messaging. You start stacking mm-hmm. this stuff up and video is now doing the same thing too. We have a monkey yeah. see monkey do effect where we look at the old way that things were done. And bec- because of that, we're not thinking about all the information you have about someone today. There's way more information mm-hmm. out there. Everyone's every buyer and decision maker. If you work at a Fortune 500 company, you're probably getting pushed by your boss to put stuff out online. Uh, if you're in a position of hiring, because that's how you build a brand mm-hmm. for the company. Their uh, CEOs are doing it. Like you see, like T-Mobile CEO is super active on social, trying to post stuff up there to represent the company because people like people. They don't like brands. Um, yeah. and they're stemming that everywhere. You're kind of you. You kind of have to do the same thing as a buyer. And so buying's changing now. And the way that you get in touch and, and connect with these people is you need to personalize stuff toward that person individually. Uh, and that's kind of the thing that's really mm-hmm. shifted. You go back 20 years, the days of someone working at a company for 15 years is gone, like, or 20 years. Now everyone's changing jobs. Average person changes jobs every 18 months. So if I'm changing yeah. jobs every year and a half, that means that like, if I prospect you about your company, you might have one foot out the door and be like, I hate my company. Screw this. Yeah. <laughs> And so like you're missing the mark there. You just, you just gave me a great segue into uh, one of those questions that I, that we sent over um, you, your career. You've, you've been almost six years at lead IQ. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so been a long time. You've really, yeah, you've really stuck there and what, what has it that, and, and you've done a lot of really interesting things before that, but what has, what, what, is, what have been some of the factors that have kept you at lead IQ for so long? Yeah. Well, I think, I really have a passion for sales. I, I started, I, I graduated in college at, during the financial crisis. I wanted to work mm-hmm. in marketing and all the entry-level jobs were taken. So I got a BDR job and I worked as a business development rep, reached out to people for a couple of years. And I was mm-hmm. just doing it to get into marketing. I was like, I just got to get something so I don't have that gap in my resume. And I hated that I learned all this cool stuff about it and approached it like a marketer. And then abandoned mm-hmm. it. And I managed to be able to come back to that working at Lead IQ. And now I'm learning there's a lot of people that struggle. And that's that's kind of like where I feel good. Like I'll get people that message me all the time that say like, hey, this tip you gave me or this thing you did really helped me. And that makes me feel good knowing that like I'm having an impact as opposed to like, you know, just collecting a check and mailing it in sort of, which is what I think a lot of people end up getting stuck doing at companies. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of made me stick around. And I also... I basically, I have my fingerprints all over the brand. And that's part of what I think is like 
the new way to do marketing. People don't like brands. They like people. So I like mm-hmm. I'm I've unintentionally become the face of the company and that's kind of how we've gone to market. Yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen tons of the videos even going back to, to 2016. And it seemed like you got into video even a little earlier than than the mainstream uh, just just seeing some of the older stuff that you put out um how how important is video now even in the basic playbook of an SDR or a, v, a BDR? Yeah, or even in a marketer too, if you're trying to build your brand out there, I think you need it because there's a, so there's this old theory that was done. Uh, there was this in the eighties, basically around early nineties when Johnny Carson was retiring, the university of New Hampshire did a study where they had, they surveyed people and they asked them, Hey, how are you doing with Johnny Carson retiring? And he had done the show for 30 years, 4,000 episodes. Hell, Conan just retired last week. And I've been bummed about that a little bit, but like they asked people, that. Yeah, people, people, well, he's going to move to HBO into a weekly format or something. But people, they started asking people like, hey, how are you doing with this? People, they, they took a blind group and asked people how sad they were about Carson retiring. And then they asked people how sad they were about their parents dying. And the sentiment was just as dark. And the reason is because when you see the same person on the air every, every day for four, 30 years, you build a connection with them. That's the same thing that happens with your prospects and your buyers is like, you have to constantly be out there putting stuff out there because that's how they build the relationship with you. I'm sure I probably got, I probably have roped a lot of our customers in by them knowing me and liking me from the content that I put out there. If I stop putting content out there, Lead IQ as an entity is just like the hundreds of other apps that do what we do. Uh, but the thing that makes us really different is the people that work there and having a connection to those people. Well, the reason we get a, what I call the old Irish try when someone's trying to try us versus a competitor is mm-hmm. uh, because they know the people that work here because we put ourselves out there. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I recognize right away that, um, that there's there's no other competitor in your in your space who has uh, su- such a, uh, a face of, of the brand the way that you are. And, and, as, and, the, and the humor element also, I think, is really unique. Is that just an, is that a reflection of just your personality? Or did you decide at some point that this was just really an effective strategy to 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 be funny? Um, it's it's a combo, a little bit of it. Yeah. So here's the evil part. The evil part, if you're a customer, don't be mad. <laughs> it's engineered a little bit. So here's the deal. We do an exercise. I first learned about this in the early two thousand like early 2010s, but we do an exercise called brand archetyping. Uh, do you know about this, Paris? Like have you ever done brand archetyping before? I've heard of it, but um, maybe you can describe it a little more. So in the 60s, I like telling these stories. I'm like going flashback, like the old times. Like that's what I'm doing right now. But um, in the 60s, ad agencies used to bring in psychologists to like do stuff. It was a huge trend that like they'd hire them and have them on staff to talk about the psychology of advertising and marketing and stuff. And one of the things that they used to do is they found out that people like putting people in categories. So like if you mm-hmm. are in school and you meet someone, you usually are like, oh, is that person? Like I'm not, I know it's kind of cliche and immature now, but like, is that person a jock? Is that person a nerd? Is that person a class clown? Is that person uh, one of the best at everything they do? Is that person a brainiac? Are they smart? Um, these are categories that we put growing up that are building blocks to how we look at society and how we socialize with people. Brands can do the same thing. And you'll see brands do it all the time. They basically, there's 12 different brand archetypes. And the thing is, we like all these type of people. We all like jocks. We all like nerds. We all like smart people at different points, class clowns. The idea is that if you mm-hmm. can commit to one, you can bring life to a brand that feels like it's a person. And that's what we do at Lead IQ. We're, we're a gesture brand. So like 
our goal is to try and when I put content out there or Mazda on our team puts content out there or Jeremy, we're trying to give you information, but we're trying to deliver it in a way that's as entertaining as possible. Um, and that's engineered intentionally because it gives us a compass for what kind of content we want to make. And I'll give you a perfectly good example. Uh, one of our, our our biggest competitors that come up on deals is uh, Zoom Info and Discover Work. They're mm -hmm. two pretty big companies. They're now one company today. Two years yeah. ago, when they first merged, a bunch of our competitors wrote these like reflective blog pieces about like, what's this mean for the space? Oh, it's really positive for the space and all that stuff. And I just saw that. I like roll my eyes. I'm like, I know these guys are like, oh, crap, that sucks. Or like, oh, crap, this is a competitor and stuff. By the way, a lot of our customers use both of us. So like, it's, it, it's totally mm -hmm. cool to use both. But um, yeah. I looked at it and said, what can we do that's different that fits that gesture brand? So we did an announcement where we talked about how at the time we were the third place market provider. When they both merged, we became number two. So I made a video talking about all these people that came in second place, like Buzz Aldrin, the Los Angeles Rams, because the Patriots had just beat them in the Super Bowl. I made a list mm -hmm. of all these second place companies. And then I had everyone in the, like a bunch of people in my office run into the camera. We just started doing a dance party to celebrate that we're now in second place because they merged. And the video is cool. one of our most viewed videos. It had like 25,000 hits on LinkedIn, lots of comments. There are people that didn't know we even competed with them that messaged us and asked us like, hey, how are you guys different? I didn't know that. And there were also people that wanted to talk to us because of the merger. We, they were thinking about like, well, now I need to add a second stack because my, tool, my two tools just became one. Now I have a spot for a second one. And that that's an example of like using a brand archetype that became a compass for us to think about like, crap, what content do I do about this acquisition? Instead, it turned into what can I do that's funny? Okay, let's make it fit into this content and it becomes easier. Yeah, so you really just, you, you led with the brand archetype and, and stay true to your brand personality and then that, that worked out great. I think that the other nice thing about the category that you're in is, as you said, customers don't have to choose only one. I think in a lot of cases, they can they can go with a, with a few, and you just want to be you want to be one of those in that, in that short list. Yeah, so maybe, uh, maybe that affects one. how you how how you speak against the competition or how you think about that. Yeah, I think I think if you're in a different case, which my previous company was like that. Like I, when I worked at Dine doing stuff. Sorry, it's, some people say Din, so you're okay with saying Din earlier. But um, okay, when, when I was at Dine, a lot of people would use us, or they would use a second DNS provider or something. We were selling managed DNS. Um, which is like IT stuff that makes your domain. It makes it so you register a domain, you can point it to whatever server you want. When I was doing marketing there, we basically had a very tough pitch to try and get someone to spend for two providers. And that's kind of less advantageous because that was the scenario. If you're listening and you're a marketer and you're trying to figure out like, what do I do to differentiate with my competition and stuff? I think one of the ways you can kind of think about it is like, you need to find some sort of insight that you can offer to a customer in your pitch that's different than the other company. Um, and I'll give you a perfectly good example of this. Um, Zora is a billing platform, right? Like everybody, yeah. most people use Zora in the software space for stuff. Zora doesn't go to market and say, we have the best billing platform. We have uh, great features. We integrate with Salesforce, all this stuff. Zora goes to the market selling you on the idea that you need to think about how to make your business more like a subscription. And they give you, and that's the way they frame everything. And it just so happens that like, hey, you really need to think about how to make your business a subscription business model. And oh, mm -hmm. by the way, we make a lot of those things easier if you need it. And if you're using another billing platform, you're like, oh, cool. I, I can use that billing platform if I want. But like, what's going to make you switch and differentiate and deal with the headache of switching a billing platform is that they are the lighthouse that's guiding you through that, that shift in your business to become 
a subscriber. And it's a really smart idea that you need to do to differentiate if you're trying to find a special spot for yourself. Yeah. And I think in that example, they, they, they just get the user to, th they reframe the, the problem. They get the user to think about something in an entirely different way um, as opposed to saying, oh yeah, here we are. Uh, here's our features versus theirs. Here's our price. But rather maybe you're, you're here researching in this category because you think, well, you have, you have this need or you have this problem, but maybe there's another, there's another issue that, or you just haven't thought about this the right way. And you're actually, you're reframing it in, in their mind, the, the problem itself. And I think if you can do that successfully, then, then you're probably going to win that, that customer because there's, you've enlightened them, you've educated them actually. And I think that's something that they won't forget. Yeah. It's uh, the comparison would be like um, it, it, you're basically their Sherpa guiding them through stuff and it becomes a much better sale. Now, Mm -hmm. people that are watching this probably be like, oh, I've seen like the greatest sales deck ever pitch. You've probably, I assume you've seen that Paris, right? Like the, the Zora thing, some, uh, uh, they, they basically Andy Raskins broke down the Zora pitch deck and talked about why it's such a great pitch and it is good, but there's an element that's missing now in 2021 that he doesn't talk about. And, uh, I learned this, uh, from talking to a couple people about this. You also need to add story with people in it to make your, reframe better. So if you're trying to differentiate, you need to like splice in some storytelling there because we're, everyone's competing for attention now. It's way harder to stand out. It, it almost was like if we did early internet marketing 10 or 15 years ago on things, it was like yelling at a library. Today we're yelling at a stadium. And that's like, so storytelling is one of the ways that you'll cut through that noise and figure that out. A lot of the stuff yeah. that we do at Lead IQ in our content and to be funny, we're still telling a story too. And usually it's a story about like, putting my foot in my mouth or like having a stupid haircut or like finding random dumb things like that to bring up. Yeah. Let's talk more about the uh, content and your overall approach. Cause I, I think you, you're doing some great stuff. Um, and I'm sure you're leading the content marketing there now. Um, so what, what is your, what's your overall approach at lead IQ to, to content and content marketing? Yeah. So a couple things that I would recommend if you're just starting out, you need to do stuff with other people. That's like the easiest thing. I kind of look at, the way I look at it is when you're making content, it's infotainment. Like you're providing information, but you're entertaining them. We actually invert the order that most companies do. So I care more about entertaining someone than giving them information. The information will come through the uh, infotainment, like the information will come through mm -hmm. the entertainment. And that's kind of how we approach it. So for example, a lot of companies do uh, webinars where they just hop on a Zoom. We still do webinars because we need to get leads in and stuff, but once a month, we do a talk show that I designed to be like a late night talk show. It's actually kind of inspired by Conan sort of, but uh, we do mm -hmm. a thing called B2B Tonight where I open up at the show. We have an intro. We do a comedy bit at the beginning for the first couple of minutes. And then we jump in with a guest. They come on and talk for 10 minutes. Then another guest comes in and talks about the same topic and they cross talk and it's really fun and engaging and different. And you learn just as much information as you would if you were staring at a slide deck for an hour on a normal webinar, except you're entertained and we're switching through it. And that's that's sort of my approach is like, can I find a way to entertain someone? I mean, you're doing it right now, Paris, with the podcast, right? Like we're we're flying through, we're asking questions, we're going through some stuff, we're telling stories. It's, it's yeah. there to distract us from this fact that like, one, you're probably bored sometimes at work. And two, life is short. You might as well fill silence with something that's entertaining and engaging. And that's kind of the approach that I take with marketing on that stuff. The hardest yeah. part, obviously, is scaling the writing. Like sometimes I get in streaks where I can't come up with stuff. I mean, 
Last year, for example, I hired a stand-up comedian to come be our content marketer. Uh, he's not working for us anymore. He's working at LinkedIn. Shout out to Rishi Mather. But like Rishi came up with a lot of really funny and cool ideas and still got the information out there that the sales team needed to push people through the funnel and still gave information out there for us to collect leads and get people in the funnel. Um, yeah. and that, that's really what it's about is like finding that right balance of stuff. The, the Everyone's always like, oh man, you can't go out and market and sell these big companies. But then it, like CEOs at Fortune 100 companies still buy Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Their brands are silly. They're still buying mm-hmm. stuff that's silly and out there. They watch comedy. They watch stand-up comedy. They are into that whole culture still. Those are yeah. normal people. You know, I heard I heard that back in the day, Groupon, uh, they were hiring uh, stand-up comedians to do all their writing. So all those Groupon deals were, or most of them were written by uh, by comics. Oh, that's awesome. Writers. Yeah. I didn't know that. That sounds cool. Um, yeah. But and like, that was one of the secret ingredients, I think, to their success. Now, now the whole thing, that whole model imploded about, uh, I don't know, when was that? 10 years or so ago. But um, I thought that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think I think the reason it imploded probably is because a lot of businesses spent money on it and didn't get return, right? Like, I, 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 at least that's yeah. my understanding, right? Yeah. So, so and, and there were really no barriers to entry either. So suddenly you just had you just had too much competition, and then and then it just destroyed the the price. So, so stemming off that though, one of the things you might be thinking is like, well, I'm a marketer or I'm a sales rep, and I don't have enough help. I don't have enough people that can be on camera and do stuff. The thing is, whether you work in sales and marketing and you're listening to this podcast, you actually, like anyone that works in sales is probably comfortable talking. You should be the person that's out there doing stuff. Like our first mm-hmm. couple of years here, we have AEs literally run our webinars because they're professional talkers. That's their job. They should listen and they have to process stuff. And best practice, obviously, is to listen mm-hmm. first. But they know how to facilitate and talk to people and dig and do discovery and unlock stuff and get, get information out there. You should be using your sales team for this. Every rep on your team could be a face of your brand. Mm-hmm. That's a great, actually, that's a great tip. It's something that we're we're trying to work on at our at our agency as well is to get people other than myself to to get their face out there. Um, I guess it's it's part of what Gary V talks about. Sometimes there's there's a psychological hurdle to to putting yourself out there, and I think there's some fear of judgment and. I think you just have to get through an uncomfortable period of just doing it in the beginning. And then it starts to get easier. Like anything, I think you just, you just, it's like training a muscle group or something. Um, And then eventually you just stop, stop caring as much about making mistakes or I don't know who's, who's, who might not like this or who's going to be a hater or anybody judging. That's why. And then then it starts to get just fun at that point. Yeah. And that's why uh, the brand archetyping thing, even though your company does it, you can actually do it as an individual person of your brand. You don't have to match up with the company on everything. So like mm-hmm. I might have someone on our company that might be a sage brand. That's more of like the smartest person in the room. They can still put stuff out there and be that sage brand as long as they're part of the lead IQ team. Like I just want them in the t-shirt mm-hmm. <laughs> with our yeah. logo at the bottom, right? If they're going to help people and show stuff like that's, I think if you pick a brand archetype, it becomes a lot easier for you to be less comfortable because you have a little bit of a compass. It's like a lighthouse that's telling you like, hey, mm-hmm. gravitate toward this because we know this works. And like, yeah. it's been proven time and time again that that stuff works. Yeah. And tell me about the repurposing aspect because now you all are creating a lot of content, various forms. A big part of this, I believe also is repurposing content. Do you have a particular method for 
for taking your lo- longer form content and chopping that up and repurposing? Yeah. So I actually, last June, I hired a full-time video editor. His name's Nick Edgar. And I worked on him with him for a bunch of projects before on some of those mm-hmm. campaigns you mentioned in my bio. Nick basically will take everything that we do that's longer form and cut it down to shorter form. And it's great. We use it for social stuff to feed on our channel. Um, I'll put stuff out there when I'm on vacation, if I'm not making a new content thing. I try to put something out every week, by the way, that's brand new. That's like a rule that I try to do and live by, like no matter what. But um, yeah, that's kind of how you approach it. Um, The other thing is not, I, I don't know if this is necessarily true. I haven't seen data back this up, but I've learned this from some people in sales. Not everybody's a visual person or an audio person. They might be more of a reader. And so we'll take some stuff like, for example, last week I did an interview um, with uh, BDR Enablement Manager at Zoom. And we talked about how she climbed up from a BDR to become a BDR Enablement uh, team and and how she's fixing process. That's getting repurposed right now into a blog post with five tips Mm -hmm. that we'll put out there. And we'll also embed clips of the video inside the blog post as well. Now I'm double dipping and I don't have to like one piece of content's turning into uh, one hour of us talking is turning into 10 hours of content. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I heard that, uh, there was an SDR that has uh, on your team that was promoted. Let me just get to that. Um, but someone that moved from an SDR, uh, team lead into a marketing role. Do you, do you think that transition is it common? I think you did it. Is it common and is it is it feasible for someone to, to move from, let's say, from SDR, BDR over into marketing? And how, how does one even think about that? Yeah. So there's three things to look for if you're eyeballing the bench for BDRs to move into that instead of an AE role or BDR manager or lifelong BDR. A couple of things I'd look for. You want to see if the person shows signs of creativity. John Mazza, who's the person you're talking about, he has done so many great creative prospecting videos. He used to send videos to people with like, like he'd do silly stuff. He'd do him dancing in a green man costume, which fits our brand a lot. He'd uh, he'd put on a captain's hat and do a bunch of poses and talk as a sea captain when he'd send videos to people. And he'd get like, he had like a 30 something percent response rate on stuff. Problem with Mazza is he'd been prospecting for five years, so he's getting burned out by it. And- So like the creativity is one piece. Another thing you want to look for if you're going to pluck someone from the BDR team is look at their writing. Um, That's a really important part here too. You want to see if they can write. Best way to look at what they do is look at the cold emails they send every day. Are they they coming up with creative new things to innovate? Are they saying stuff? Do they have a grasp on the language that fits really well with what you're looking for? I would look at his cold emails all the time and he had great language right there that was full of personality, but still informative. He was sticking to the position that we tried to arm everybody with, with our playbooks and our battle cards, um, while mm-hmm. still finding a creative way to execute it in his own voice. And the last part that I think really made him stand out that you could look for if you're tapping into the BDR stuff uh, as a potential is you could also look at uh, how's their business acumen? Do they understand the space? And that's the advantage you get off of BDR as opposed to someone outside that you might hire. Like I could go get a content marketer but if I get someone that hasn't worked in the sales space, they have to learn the lay of the land, what people care about, what are our buyers thinking about. He just spent months literally talking to our years talking to people that we're trying to target. So he knows how they think and what they talk about. Now I have to ask this question. It's probably an obvious one, but do you all use, do you eat, eat your own dog food, so to speak? Do you use lead IQ for your own prospecting? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually still prospect sometimes too. I mainly do cold email. I do some cold calling here and there, but I've mainly been doing mm -hmm. cold email because it's passive. So like I could prospect someone for an hour. I could do prospecting for an hour, go do my marketing job and then get a response. If I do cold calling, it's basically like I'll rip a couple. I might rip six or seven connects on a, in a one hour session. But like if I get one connect, basically my hour is done because we'll talk on the phone for 10 minutes. So mm -hmm. like that basically will like go through it. What I've been doing is we'll actually do a couple things. Um, Lead IQ lets you, I'm not trying to top pitch our own products, just some stuff that you can do if you happen to be a customer, but Lead IQ lets yes, you sure. enrich based on first name, last name, and company name. When I do post on social, I usually capture the people that like and engage it and then have someone on the SDR team reach out and I'll reference the content that they liked. That's one way that a lot of people use us. Another mm -hmm. thing that I'll do is if you use LinkedIn Sales Navigator and I have a guest coming up on a webinar and their connections are public, I'll actually go prospect and capture all their connections that fit into our ICP and then give that to the sales team to go reach out to those people as prospects and saying like, like if I had you Paris on, I might be like, Hey, I'm having Paris on uh, next week for BB tonight. Thought you might want to attend. We're going to be talking about this. And I know you, you're connected with them on LinkedIn. I love that. That's great. Yeah. So like, we'll do some stuff like that on the marketing team that kind of integrate and unite the teams a little bit. Oh, that's yeah. That's really cool. And, and uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, we also will do some stuff with, um, our marketing team's heavily embedded with sales. So like some of the training that I make that we do for marketing content will offer for teams that we have in pipeline. So like if I have a hundred thousand dollar deal with somebody um, that our reps trying to close, we'll offer to do like the same social selling training I might do for a webinar. I'll tailor just for that one account and change it a little bit for them based on their policies. And then we'll mm -hmm. go do that one hour training, but we do it for one account at a time. And we put it on like a real webinar, full production, lower thirds with names. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. splice in their bosses and have them talk sometimes. But like we do a fully embedded webinar for one account because it's worth my hour of time. These little wins get us momentum. This momentum helps us get more customers. And the other cool yeah. part, unfortunately, is that sales has such high turnover. Average person in sales changes jobs every nine months. If I mm -hmm. touch three or four of those people on that account webinar that I do for that one account and they all go to different companies, they bring us with them. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great idea. I've been trying something recently. Uh, I do a LinkedIn live once a week and we call it SaaS, the SaaS marketing teardown. And uh, I, I dig into one aspect of a, of a SaaS company's marketing. Um, could, be, could be a landing page or it could be page, page strategy or something. And usually the, the, those are selected strategically as well. And um, it's either someone that we're, we're trying to get on their radar screen or we want to we want to get a little bit of thought leadership in that category. So maybe um, maybe that company might be a little bit out of reach. So I, yet last week it was Salesforce and, and actually the Salesforce versus Pipedrive um, mar marketing battles on landing pages that we see. So a little bit out of reach, but still the CRM space is, is you know, we want to make some noise in that space and, and just to let people know that we're, we're, we're aware of that category and how people are doing things, communicating. I mean, if you want to take it a step further too, you could technically do that same teardown, but get someone from Salesforce on it too, or get someone from a different company on there that works in the space. And mm -hmm. then when you put that content out there and tag that person and give them the content and they post it, you're now coming up in their connections feeds for X amount of time. You yeah. want to evolve it even further. This is where it can be really cool. Um, you also could you make that and then go prospect, send that to a prospect to break in. So if I do a mm -hmm. teardown of something, like for example, I get a cold email from, I'll give you a good example, actually. 
um, I got a cold email from a company that's like a $2 billion valuation and it was a bad email. I didn't shame the SDR. I emailed them and said, hey, uh, I'm going to give you some tips on this email if you want. Uh, that might help you. Obviously, you don't have to use them if you don't want to. But like, I, mm-hmm. I, I give them the objection and said, I'm responding because I want to be respectful of your time and stuff. Do you, and I'll ask them this. And they're like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I went and recorded it, gave them some feedback on their email, sent it to them. And then I asked them, hey, do you mind if I, after they, they, they liked the advice, it helped them a lot. I asked them afterward, hey, would you mind if I put this out online? And they just asked me to blur, block out their information. Now I've got content that I'm putting out there that I just did. And I did it for one account. And by the way, that company turned into a customer of ours eventually. So like I yeah. built a relationship through that uh, individual contributor. They showed the advice to their boss. They said, what's Sweet IQ? They looked into it. They filled out a form. The rest is history. That's I cool. Just, That's a cool I just story. Panicked. I just panicked for a second thinking I said the company did. <laughs> That's what I, did you see my face? I was like, wait, oh, I didn't say that. Okay, we're good. We're good. You're good. You're okay. No, you didn't. Um. Hey, I wanted to, I wanted to ask now about the a little bit more about the marketing strategy because I see that on on Lead IQ all the pricing plans are leading to uh, just really to a contact form where uh, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna get introduced to sales, but I was a little curious why there's no sign of any product led growth type of approach where you say take us for a spin for 14 days and uh, was that was that a conscious decision not to go product led growth or are you all still have it planned at some point, or is it just not really feasible in your so, space? Yeah, there's two things going on right now. The first is we actually did product-led growth for the first couple of years and then switched more to a sales function. Okay. Basically what happened was when we were doing product-led growth, we'd have a lot of fraud sign up and we couldn't get around it. So like, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. One of the best programs we used to do is we used to let people try 100 free leads. I go and put a 100 free lead form on our website. And I'll, the, the, the final straw that broke the camel's back was there was a day I woke up in August and I was checking our numbers and I logged in and we had 12,000 downloads. And it was all from mm-hmm. the same account in like Sri Lanka, someone just trying to get free emails. <laughs> so I, I basically yeah. had to, um, I had to, we had to scramble to figure it out because we're like, why do, now we have all this junk data in our marketing and all this stuff. And we have legitimate customers that were coming in that were getting ignored. We tried some stuff with, uh, we eventually did something where you had to put a credit card in to do a free trial and sign up. Um, and it was okay. We actually had good conversion on it. The problem was uh, eventually we wanted to expand and mobilize it internally at a company. And we realized we lost a lot of that leverage if we uh, had someone go into a demo. So now we're doing mainly orchestrated planned po- uh, proof of concepts with companies. Now the future, mm-hmm. we're at that point now where we are probably going to move back to a product qualified lead motion for some stuff. Um, at the moment, if you go to our website and fill out the form, we route you based on your company size. So we enrich it with our own data. And if we see okay. someone's a certain size, we map you to sales. If not, we map you to a confirmation email that signs up for you. Now, here's the interesting part. Um, the product qualified motion that we're going to work on is basically going to make it so that it's, it, it's more designed for bottom-up selling for these large organizations too. Uh, that's currently being engineered and reworked right now, and that'll probably be out in Q4. But it's... For a little while, it was mainly we didn't have the capacity to deal with the fraud. We now have over 150 people working here. So like I can get a whole team to work on like, let's tackle the fraud problem now. Uh, back then when we had small, like, I don't know, less than a dozen engineers, it was very difficult to do that. So like we're in a much better place today to handle that. Oh, that's that's a great, great context. Yeah. So the thing that you're working on, I, I couldn't quite get my head around that. You, it's, it's going to be... Uh, 
it's actually going to demonstrate how you can you can sell bottom up. Um, so so the leads can experience that themselves when they when they sign up. Yeah, basically what we're going to do is we're going to build something that tears out what features you have capability for. And this is after doing some engine, like we did some work on figuring out what features people care about at different tiers. For example, mm -hmm. smaller companies use Lead IQ to get data. Larger companies use Lead IQ to uh, optimize workflow. We obviously care about getting more of the larger companies in the funnel. So mm -hmm. uh, when someone comes in, we will tailor the experience of them based on their company size to emphasize certain features and stuff. And that'll be the next uh, next level of this. Prior to that, gotcha. we, were just, we had to make just one because that's all we could manage. But because we have enough engineers, I mean, our team is pretty much half engineers now. It's a lot mm -hmm. easier for us to go get like a team focused on fixing this and optimizing it. That's And that's mm -hmm. sort of what the plan will be. And then on the sales side, it'll basically be about like taking those people and uh, chasing them and showing them value on why they should, you know, commit to us in a longer term like solution, yeah. sort of. So that's that's where we're going toward this. So it's it's going to be a little bit now of int introducing maybe account based marketing at the for those mid market or or larger companies. Yeah, and you're you're enriching with your own data. Is Lead IQ's own enrichment to get the company size? Yep, yep. Uh, it's not available to the public yet. So if you're listening, okay. you're like, oh, I can use it for enrichment. We don't do this yet. We're doing it internally as like a test and audit, but we've been enriching with our own data for roughly about nine months. Um, uh -huh. I think we. I think the hard part about the enrichment space is uh, even though Lead IQ gives people data, we're really trying, I know you brought this up earlier, which is great because I think this is something you want to talk about. We really try not to position Lead IQ as a data provider, uh, mainly because data is a commodity at this point. Like if I go to the grocery store and I mm -hmm. buy apples and then I go to a farmer's market and buy apples, the apples are pretty much going to taste the same. Um, Data to us is not a differentiator between all these different data providers that are out there. I think the things that we're going to do, the differentiator are going to be focused a lot more on making it so that reps can like eliminate busy work where you can focus mm -hmm. a little bit more on like being more strategic with your prospecting. And eventually we'll build some features on top of that that will make it so you can like collaborate with selling and stuff. But like the data thing is just kind of like, I don't want to just go pedals of data. It is a commodity. Because it's so easy. It's so easy to get data now. It's not. And by the way, if you listen to this and you're like, what are you talking about, Ryan? Data is a big problem for our company. Just add a second provider. It's the easiest way to solve any data problem you have. Usually if you have mm -hmm. a second provider, you can shoot up your data coverage by 30%. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a commodity. And I think um, it's more about optimizing those workflows and um, and then I think the, the integration part also, how many CRMs today do you all integrate with? So the biggest use case for us is actually people use Salesforce. We also integrate with HubSpot. So if you use HubSpot, mm -hmm. CRM, you can use it. But the biggest thing that we see is the companies that are using a sales engagement platform like SalesLoft or Outreach love using us because we make it mm -hmm. so much easier to get a lead into those tools. At the moment, mm -hmm. if you don't use us, and let's say I find a prospect online, like on LinkedIn that I want to prospect, I have to grab that person, copy and paste all their info into Salesforce, make the lead, and then enrich it with whatever data provider I'm using for stuff. And then I got to import that person from the from Salesforce into Outreach or SalesLoft and then add them into the sequence or cadence that I want. We do that all in one click. So you literally just pick who you want to send it to and it rifles it off right into that Outreach cadence or, or Outreach sequence or SalesLoft cadence. So those are the yeah. providers we work with right now. Um, we kind of don't really need to add other integrations yet. It's, it hasn't come up as a major problem. The other cool part is because of the way that those sales engagement platforms work with bi-directional syncs, 
you can technically just inter- buy one of those and then use their bidirectional sync to push into the CRMs that they built with. Mm-hmm. Do you do you work with Zapier? Can, uh, can, can you just pipe it in with Zapier? Or uh, so kind of, uh, we okay. also integrate with Google drive and every time that you capture someone with lead IQ, it creates a new row in a Google sheet for you. Yeah. If you sync it correctly, all you have to do is set up something in Zapier that says, Hey, add to, if added to Google sheet, push into whatever app you want. So like we have a lot of people that yeah. will use like a pipe drive or, uh, copper is another popular one that we see people use. Yeah. yeah we're you, on pipe drive. Yeah. yeah. You just link those guys in through uh, Google sheets and you can do it that way. The only downside yep. is there's a five minute delay. Ah, well, I, I mean, we could live with that and probably most people could. Yeah, that's true too. It, it's just, if you're someone that's like, oh, I want to go frightful this off right away. And you, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the scenario you could deal with too. Yeah. Wow. That's excellent. So, Hey, I want to hear last about your podcast. Cause I, it looks like you've been at it for about five years. Is that right? Yeah, it's been way too long. Um, the prospecting podcast. So I basically, for me, the way that we kind of frame the podcast, um, I try to get people on that are not the normal sales expert people you see in our space. Um, Mm -hmm. I really, I mean, we do have some of those people sometimes, but um, it's basically we're flies in the wall just talking and like I'll have conversations about stuff. Once in a great while, it'll be someone plugging something so we can talk about a specific topic, but um, it's very easy to do on our end. I highly recommend everybody does a podcast. There's so many of them now, but like if you're, if you're a company, you should at least have a podcast about your industry. Just because it's a good way to correspond. The other thing is this. This is a little secret for people. We also have reps trained at Lead IQ so that if someone says they're not interested in us at the moment or they're stuck in a contract, we have them ask if they want to be on our podcast. And it allows mm-hmm. us to build a relationship with that person so that three or four months from now when they're in the evaluation process, like, oh, I heard about Lead IQ when we were you were reading an ad in the middle of the podcast or something. Um, yeah. And so like, you basically build a relationship with that person through the podcast to nurture your mm-hmm. relationships. Yeah. Yeah. For me, just to build on that, because I've only been at this for a few months and I, and I really enjoy it. One of the things that I like so much is just the ability to have a conversation without any sales pressure, without there ever being some some lingering hanging cloud that, all right, do they suspect I'm going to sell them something or, or um, I don't know. It, it really is a, a lot of times a no, no strings attached. I, uh, I really, I, I want to hear unique voices. I want to, I want to serve our audience and give them, give them great tips and great give perspectives they haven't heard. And not having any any sales pressure really, it's one of the nicer things about podcasting. And then there's that, uh, that there's that halo effect that it still might people still could remember and and come back. Um, but that's not the purpose of it. So that to me is one of the the reasons I like doing it so much. Yeah, I, I definitely think what you're going to see a lot more in the future probably is you'll probably see a lot more companies do podcasts that will also be video casted or live streamed, and then they'll repurpose it as a podcast afterward. One of the mm-hmm. things I'd love to do, but I feel like the tech hasn't been that good and I can't get the reach for it on on stuff is to do podcasts with live questions in it. Like it'd be so cool to do mm-hmm. call-ins and stuff. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that would. Um, I th- Well, I think Gary Vee does stuff like that, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got- he's mainly feeding off Twitch, I think, when he does it. But like, okay, for us in the B two B space, trying to build build an audience and stuff, those people aren't usually hanging out on Twitch during the workday. So that's kind of yeah. the hard part. Like I do LinkedIn Live, for example. LinkedIn Live is usually for us. It's usually just like 
I'm going to hang out with an employee and just let people see what it's like when we hang out. And that's kind of what we, we'll just talk about something or debate something. And it's fun, but it's also like kind of, it's kind of a, a stressful thing to deal with a little bit um, because you mm-hmm. need to get an audience to rely on that dynamic content. If you don't have that audience, you don't get questions. You don't get questions. You're kind of just sitting there without, it's like, it's like swimming without a life jacket on. Yeah. I know in our, in our first several webinars, I'll, I'll have, I have to admit something here, but we would have some employees just be ready to step in. If there was ever, if there was ever crickets for, I don't know, a minute. So when we got to Q and A and if, if we got crickets, we had a couple of employees that were ready, that were standing by ready to get in there and, Oh, it looks like uh, Anastasia has got a, got a question. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I remember once very early in meet IQ, I did a webinar. Um, and someone, someone said, uh, Ryan, tell your mom, I say hi. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And I had pushed something out on Facebook. And what, what happened was one of my cousins actually signed up for a webinar and was asking a question. And I didn't piece together that it was my cousin at the time. So like, yeah, you, oh, you, you just got to get it started. I mean, the Reddit guys did that too. When they were starting Reddit, they, they basically made fake posts up as different throwaway accounts to get conversations mm-hmm. started with people. So they felt like there was some social proof that the thing they were doing had an impact and a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Ryan, this has been great. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you were hoping that I would ask you or anything that you'd like our audience to know? Um, no, I just think that if you're listening to this and you work in marketing, tell people in sales about this. Cause like, I think there's a, I, like I put a lot of content out there, but I'm really trying to fix sales. I think there's a way that we can all prospect better and make it so that like, wouldn't it be great if we could go through our inbox and enjoy looking at cold emails? That's like the whole thing that I just want everybody to think about and come away with with this. And you can do that. Sales can do that. You could literally enjoy writing cold emails and doing cold calling and not feel like garbage doing it. If you just kind of take a second and say, I'm going to attack this like an agency. I'm going to attack this like a creative uh, marketer and approach it that way. And that's just all how I want Mm -hmm. you guys to think about this as a takeaway. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great mindset, Ryan. And I feel the same way actually about ads online too, that, I think ads that are done well can uh, actually be really enjoyable and, and that can be high quality content. And I think the same is true with your inbox. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be nice if I actually enjoyed and was entertained and delighted by people who had done their, done their homework and approached me in a really thoughtful manner. And uh, I would certainly be responding to a lot more of them also. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's, uh, but that's my takeaway. I think if anyone's listening and trying to figure out, like, oh, what what's the big message here? The big message is, come on, be, let's make be, be it, business to business is boring and it doesn't have to be. Like, it could be so much better. Let's have fun with this stuff. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great way to leave us. Uh, and I I believe we can get there too. I think I think sales can get there, and I think we're on our way actually. And it's. Uh, Great tools like Lead IQ and others that are that are all helping us to do that. So, uh, yeah, Ryan, thanks very much for coming on. I really enjoyed the the chat today. Yeah, great conversation. Thanks a lot, Paris. All right. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.